Okay. Um, what do you actually want to talk about? Well, there's the Falcon. Okay. And the Winter Soldier. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, if we still did cold opens, that would be the cold open. We don't still do cold opens? Well, there hasn't been one since we came back, has there? Or am I just not listening to our own show? Apparently. Okay. Uh, perhaps it's slightly embarrassing, but... Yeah, I haven't actually heard the show. <laughs> Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Non-Toxic Fanboys podcast, where, as ever, the name is aspirational. I am Glenn Butler, and today we are talking about the Falcon, and the Winter Soldier, and the Radical, and the Baron, and the new Captain America, and the Power Broker, and the Senator, and a partridge in a pear tree. I am joined in this by my brother, Scott. Hello, Scott. Hello. I think the show has probably been over long enough that we don't really need to do a whole non-spoiler segment. Uh, just as a quick warning, we're going to be discussing the show in its totality, so... Yeah, spoiler warning on that whole thing about there being a new Captain America. Is that a spoiler? I mean, to get right into the spoilers, there are a couple of new Captains America here. Is that the proper enunciation of it? Captain's America? I think so. I mean, it's not Captain America's. Well, there are two Americas. I don't know. I kind of feel like the person they keep calling Captain America mostly represents one part of an America. I don't know. That's a, uh, a lot of this show is very confused, and that is one part that is also kind of confused. Like, this isn't my original observation. I saw several people point this out on Twitter. Like, apparently John Walker went to a high school that has an HBCU marching band. Hmm. They also go to great lengths to try to humanize him by giving him this girlfriend and the best friend, and, you know, he wants to make people feel safe, and the friend points out that he always makes the right choices in the heat of battle, and yet the entire rest of the time he's depicted as this hair-trigger violent hothead. So that's also kind of confused. Well, not the entire rest of the time. <laughs> Yeah, the entire rest of the time. When is he not? Well, do you want to talk about the end of the finale, where he suddenly chooses to forego vengeance and try to save the people who totally aren't the UN and then gets a nod of respect from Sam? Yeah, for like one moment he like tries to save the lives rather than like pursue his personal vengeance. Yeah, for one second he gives up his defining character trait. Although I have to give huge props to the casting department. It must have been hard trying to find somebody that can look like that much of a smug asshole, even with most of his face covered in a mask. Yeah, even with his face covered, he's still undeniably the avatar of hyper-masculine U.S. imperialism. Well, hyper-masculine U.S. imperialism is also, again, depicted in, like, wildly different ways that wind up coming off as kind of confused. That's kind of how I feel about a lot of elements of this show. I think when you have a show like this, which is dipping into 
a lot of topical subjects, a lot of very important cultural conversations. When you have a franchise show that is more of a topical political thriller than the rest of the franchise, and it's made by the Disney Corporation, and it's made in association with the U.S. military, as pretty much any entertainment media about the military is, you can very easily wind up with something that is a little muddled and depicts a lot of its subjects in various contradictory ways. Can I just ask, who is this government official? Mm-hmm. He's at the ceremony at the Smithsonian where Sam donates the shield to the museum. He, he's there to, like, thank Sam for the donation or whatever. Then he's the one who introduces John Walker as the new Captain America. You'd think that would be somebody from the Defense Department or possibly the president himself, but it's this senator guy. Then he's the one in charge of the disciplinary board after John Walker kills the Flag Smasher. He's the one that hands down the decision that he's going to be dishonorably discharged and will no longer be Captain America. Again, you'd think that would be some sort of tribunal of military officers who would discharge him. And if it wasn't military officers, you'd think that would be communicated by the commander-in-chief. Where does this guy who's repeatedly referred to as senator come in the chain of command that can discharge John Walker? And then at the end, he's also apparently on this global relocation council committee that's going to vote to, like, move all the refugees by force. He's also in charge of that. His role is very confused. Well, his role is government official whenever we need an official from the government to be doing something. Whatever government it is and whatever that thing is. If nothing else, they should have just made him like a cabinet secretary or something. I mean, it makes enough sense for a senator to be at the shield ceremony, but it makes no sense for some random senator to be the one introducing the new Captain America, and it makes no sense for a senator to be handing down a verdict for punishing a military officer for crimes committed while on duty. And it makes very little sense for this senator to also be on this global relocation council committee. If he was like the Secretary of State or the Secretary of Defense or something like that, that would make a lot more sense. Or if they had just used like a fake president, although I guess they don't want to get into that. Well, I mean, there was a fake movie president featured very prominently in Iron Man 3. They already went there. Of course, whatever one can say about this franchise, it doesn't have a very tight grip on the separation of powers. Yeah, I basically likened it to Doctor Who in my head, the way that, like, they just need a government to do something, and so, like, they just do it. It doesn't make any sense in relation to reality, and it makes very little sense in relation to the story itself. But, like, kind of the way the government operates in, like, Children of Earth, or the way the government operates in Death in Heaven. <laughs> like, who is that group that was responsible for S.H.I.E.L.D.? that Samuel L. Jackson kept arguing with that wasn't the UN and wasn't the UN Security Council, but was like some other thing that was like basically the UN Security Council if they had actual power. 
I was just going to bring that up. If you think back to Avengers 1, there's that nebulous council that was never really identified and never really explained at all. I mean, even in... And maybe I'm not remembering the details of the film completely, but uh, what was Senator Robert Redford's role in Captain America 2? Was he a senator or was he not a senator? I thought he was in charge of S.H.I.E.L.D. Or like in charge of that council or something like that. Yeah, was he on that council? Although they did call him secretary, didn't they? Secretary. He was the secretary. That's right. Secretary of what and for whom? Interesting question. (laughs) (laughs) That are not at all addressed in the movie because they just need an official to do things. He was a secretary of the World Security Council. Okay, what the hell is that? Well, it's definitely not the UN Security Council. Absolutely not. (laughs) The World Security Council is an international council formed by politicians from some of the Earth's most powerful countries to function as oversight for S.H.I.E.L.D. What? Huh? So, like, confusion about government officials and their roles is not unique to this series that you're saying? No, it's absolutely not. Although, if you're going to do a series that is, again, a political thriller, then (laughs) it's not necessarily a bad thing to have a political structure that's counterfactual. These are works of fantasy. But... It would be advantageous to have a political structure that, like, the audience understood. Yes. And instead, the show uses a lot of shorthand. You know, there are these GRC troops that are rounding people up who are basically just troops from a government. Yeah, I never got a clear picture of, like, who are they rounding up and why and what are they trying to do? Like, there are refugees because of the snap, but I never really got a clear picture of, like, how and why and why it's a problem now. The... Okay. This might be embarrassing if listeners got more of the details of this than we did, but the way that I understand the premise is that after the snap, when half of life disappeared, some migrations occurred because there was suddenly a very different distribution of people, and I think the people who are refugees in The Falcon and the Winter Soldier are people who moved into places where people had disappeared and made those places their new homes. And then the people whose homes they were five years ago suddenly existed again. There was mention of all of the old governments reforming, all of the old borders being reinforced. Yeah, I don't understand why that would happen. Because only half of the people vanished. It's not like 90% of the people vanished. Like, half of the people showed up again expecting everything to be like it was five years ago, but half of the people expect everything to be the way it has been for the past five years. Why would they automatically go back to status quo antebellum? Unless, like, just by pure chance, all of the governments and militaries were among the people that were snapped, and so all the people in charge are among the half that expect it to go back to the way it was. 
I don't understand why they would be restoring everything as it was five years ago when at least half of the people in charge of everything should be among the half that have been living it for the past five years and want things to stay the way they are. In fact, there should be more people in charge. Oh, suddenly you have twice the government officials? Again? Well, half the government officials from five years ago vanished. They would have to replace a lot of them. So even if we count all of the government officials that just reappeared, there would be more government officials from the current day than there are who reappeared from five years ago. <laughs> and that brings up another point that I had, which I sort of thought of during the WandaVision show, but it was really only very tangentially related to stuff going on in WandaVision because sword director Squarejaw McWhiteface talked about how you don't know what we had to do in the last five years and you don't know the chaos caused by everyone showing up again. And that was part of his whole deal. But it was really only a very minor point in WandaVision. It's a much larger point in Falcon and Winter Soldier. This is all kind of Iron Man's fault. Because Iron Man is the one that said, we can't just go back to five years ago. We have to, like, keep the five years that everyone went through hell and just bring back the people that haven't experienced it. All of this chaos and the conflict between the people that like the new changes and the people that want to go back to what they knew before they were snapped and people just expecting things to be the way they were five years ago because that's the last thing they remember. And all of these, you know, people reappearing in what they still think is their house, except there's new people that have been living there for the past five years. All of this chaos, that's all kind of Iron Man's fault. He's the one that said we can't just undo the last five years. So you're telling me Tony Stark had a kid and didn't want to retcon her, and so this show has happened. Yeah, basically. Tony Stark didn't want to retcon his kid, and therefore we have this whole Flag Smasher refugee crisis and the conflict between the people that don't like the old borders and the people who want to reinstate the old borders and the very existence of the old borders because there are... I don't understand how the borders shifted. Like, a population depletion, how did that cause national borders to rewrite themselves within a five-year period? I mean, hmm. Unless it's another one of those extremely unlikely but technically possible things, like the 50% of people that disappeared just happened to include 90% of Poland and only 10% of Germany, or something like that. Did Thanos say in one of the movies that it would be, like, completely random? That's what he said. That's why he said it was so fair. So much more fair than distributing things based on who had the power to take them. Yet not quite as fair as distributing resources equally or even according to need, but I guess that's not this show. <laughs> That does, I think, get to the heart of the confusion about a lot of the issues in this show. And I think the show itself is a little confused about the issues in it. Because you can elide a lot of the details of those world-shaking developments in a movie about a superhero fighting a villain. But the Captain America series and this new Falcon series... Like, Captain America 2 and Captain America 3 and this series are political thrillers, are political dramas. And so you really ought to have a tighter grip on the geopolitics if you're going to make a show about geopolitics. 
Well, I mean, it's not just the geopolitics. The characters are equally confused in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like this Flag Smasher leader, Carly Morgenthau. Thau. Morgenthau? I don't know how to pronounce that name without putting an L at the end. She keeps saying, you know, one world, one people, we're all united, I'm fighting for everyone. Even Sam is like, you're fighting for a good cause, I agree with your cause, let's try to work together rather than fighting. And at the end, he gives a whole speech about how they should, like, take her concerns seriously, which we'll get to that later because I have more to say about that. Oh boy, yeah. All of that is fine, except for, like, at the end of one episode, she just random bombs some people. Seemingly just because the producers realized, oh shit, the audience is actually going to sympathize with the villain. Let's make her do something unambiguously evil. It just sticks out like a sore thumb, because she keeps saying, you know, we're one world and one people, and I'm fighting for everybody. Oh, except those people I killed. Fuck them. And Sam is still like, you know, you're fighting for a good cause, let's work together instead of fighting against each other about it. Momentarily sidestepping, oh yeah, there's the people she murdered. And it's not like she killed a bunch of the, like, GRC stormtroopers or whatever, she killed a bunch of stock clerks at their warehouse. Was that just a warehouse and not like a barracks or something? Well, they went in and took all the stuff. She said, you're holding six months worth of supplies that you haven't passed out to people. Right, right, right. I mean, I guess they probably had some guards there who technically may count as the GRC stormtroopers. And you can see even her followers are horrified by it. Even the people that are, like, supporting her group for one world and one people and everything, even they're horrified that she starts killing people. And more horrified later when she suggests killing more of them. I mean, it's the same thing that these stories keep doing. Where you have a villain who has a very legitimate point about systemic injustices, so in order to make the audience not sympathize with them, they have to suddenly turn the sadism up to 11. Usually it's like halfway through the movie, and in this series it's, you know, a couple episodes in, that she suddenly goes from forcing us into refugee camps is a grievous abuse of our human rights to let's kill a lot of people. Well, the bombing was at the end of episode three. It was right in the midpoint. Okay. I don't remember when exactly anything happens in these serialized shows, especially since I binged all of it at once. Can you call it binging if it's six episodes? I don't want to call six episodes binging. Yeah, if this group is dedicated to the idea that we are one world and we are one people, does that mean that the villain of this series is the globalists? Or is that senator working for the globalists? If there's a global cabal whose end goal is to enforce national borders, are they globalists or nationalists? Or are they both? Because this whole thing is very confused. Very confused. Yes, they're global nationalists. And toward the end of the series, people start calling Carly a supremacist without any modifier. And I don't understand what that word means without a modifier. I think Zemo's implication is that anybody who is put in a position where they are considered to be superior will become a supremacist. Okay. 
That's a point that a person can make. You know, Carly has taken this serum, and so now she's stronger than everyone and faster than everyone. And so she's naturally going to use her strength and speed to impose her will on others. Well, I mean, he basically believes in the will to power, right? Well, I don't know how much he believes in the will to power, but his indictment of superhumans is that they will believe in the will to power because they have extraordinary powers. It's sort of self-fulfilling. And again, that's a reasonable point that a reasonable person can make in critique of these characters put in the mouth of someone who then has to go kill people so we don't think too hard about it. Does Zemo actually kill people, like, other than the doctor who's making the superhumans? I guess the other superhumans at the end. By his own hand? That's what we're shown. Zemo is actually one of the more consistently depicted characters in this show. His goal is for there to be no more superhumans. So he kills the doctor that's making the serum to enable the superhumans. And at the end, his butler kills a whole bunch of the remaining superhumans. And when he finds the serum to make the superhumans, he destroys it. He is actually one of the more consistent characters in this whole thing. He's trying to do the same thing from beginning to end. He's not even trying to escape imprisonment. He's just trying to stop there being superhumans. Well, I suppose my reaction might be the reaction that a lot of the characters have to Carly, right? Like, I understand your goals, but your methods, mmm, I'm not sure about those. I mean, if you want to try to analyze it past there, then you get into really weedy territory. Because, like, if the supreme people naturally become supremacists because they're supreme, then Zemo, I guess you could call him an eliminationist? Oh, dear. And the people he wants to eliminate are the Ubermenschen? That kind of becomes confused once you try to analyze it to that point. That definitely becomes ethically confused, yes. I'm trying to figure out John Walker. Okay. They give him this girlfriend and the best friend to try to make him seem likable. Well, they give him the best friend also just to make him even more transparently... Not racist? What, you think he's not racist because he has a black friend? And a black girlfriend? And went to a high school that has an HBCU marching band? <laughs> well... <laughs> but was John Walker a fairly normal, dedicated soldier who took on the mantle of Captain America and through a combination of inflated ego and pressure to live up to the name, turned into this aggressive, violent psychopath? Or was he always kind of an aggressive, violent psychopath, and the girlfriend and best friend who are supposed to humanize him just, like, thought that was fine, because that's what they think is good and normal? Because, like, when he murders the Flag Smasher with Captain America's shield, the girlfriend doesn't pull away from him. And, like, he never has a moment where he's like, damn, I went too far. I'm turning into a bad guy. I need to rein myself in. He never has that moment. 
He always says, I was right. I did what I had to do. I was justified. They made me do it. I did what you sent me out there to do. I did nothing wrong. He maintains that all the way through. Well, of course he does. Did anyone at Abu Ghraib think they were a terrible person? That's why in the last episode, when he does momentarily pause his quest for vengeance in order to try to save the lives of everyone trapped in the police van, that's depicted as, like, the audience is supposed to see it as, like, the John Walker redemption. But he never has any moment where he regrets any of the terrible things he's been doing. No, not at all. So, like, I don't get how that moment is supposed to be a redemption arc when, like, he continues to maintain that he was right to kill that guy. He continues to maintain that he was doing the right thing and was doing his job and they forced him into taking those actions. He continues to maintain that he still deserves the shield and deserves to be Captain America, and Bucky and Sam only want to take that away from him because they're jealous. And then at the end, he's just, like, happy to be back on duty. He never has any moment where he recognizes he's gone in the wrong direction and tries to correct himself. He even lies to Lamar's family about who killed him and what happened to the person that killed him. Mm Mm-hmm. He never does anything that would, like, suggest a redemption of the character, other than in one moment he tries to save a truck full of lives rather than pursue his personal vengeance quest. But it's still depicted as if the audience is supposed to think he's turned good now? That little moment of redemption for him does kind of stick in my craw. I mean, you can have him try to save the truck full of people, But when Sam gives him this respectful nod, like, "Mm, thank you for joining the fight, that really sticks in my craw. Because John Walker gets that moment, and all Carly gets is croaking out, I'm sorry, as she dies. You know, she doesn't get the moment of introspection that you're talking about it being a problem that John Walker didn't get. Yeah. She never gets that moment where she realizes what she's done and what she's become and reacts in horror the way that everyone around her has been reacting in horror right along. If you want to try to depict her as, like, a good person with laudable goals who just went wrong, she needs that moment to, like, realize it. Because a good person would realize that they've done wrong and regret it. And, like... Maybe she did, but it's really hard to depict that kind of realization and realignment of internal morals in, like, five seconds as they're dying. Well, yeah, you can't do it in five seconds as a character's dying. Maybe you don't always have to kill that character. Well, she was killed because she could identify Sharon as the power broker. It's not like she was killed by one of the heroes. No, I'm not saying she was killed by one of the heroes. I'm saying she was killed by the writer's room. Hmm. I think killing her off is fine, but, like, trying to maintain sympathy with her, or at least trying to maintain sympathy in the way they did. Like, you can depict her as, like, she had laudable goals and then just went off the deep end and started murder plots. That's fine. You could depict that, but, like... They didn't really have any sort of inciting incident for that, though. 
Like, why, after she raids this stockhouse of supplies, does she suddenly decide to blow up the people that they tied up inside? And then, like, two episodes later, when she accidentally kills Lamar, she's like, you see a reaction to that. She's horrified that she's killed this man that she was fighting, which doesn't make any sense because she already made the conscious decision to kill all the people in that warehouse an episode ago. That scene where she expresses that she didn't mean to kill Lamar, that is another scene that sticks in my craw. Oh, God, can we talk about Lamar for a second? Oh, Jesus, we didn't even properly talk about John Walker yet. (laughs) Well, do you have any more points on John Walker? I think we outlined all of the various inconsistencies and whiplashes involved in John Walker. Well, as to your question about whether John Walker was always... I don't know if I want to say psychopath, because using the language of psychology, I think, is often perilous. An explosively violent, short-tempered hothead? Yeah, yeah. As to your question about whether he always had the capacity to be that extraordinarily violent, and then lie about it, and then do everything else that he does following that... Those are qualities that are cultivated in a lot of people in a lot of ways. And I think that the training that a military force uses to build a force of soldiers who will commit all of the acts that soldiers do and then go home and not all of them suffer PTSD forever from the things they do during battles... I think, serves to cultivate a lot of those qualities. Hoskins says in the show, the serum makes you more yourself. And I think this is one area where the show actually knew what it was doing and used its symbolism consistently in one specific way. The show, I think, very successfully portrays John Walker as a vision of Captain America that is capital W wrong from how easily he takes to the celebrity element of it to his capacity for that sort of violence to just so many things about the way that he's presented and the way that he acts. My overriding thought was this is exactly the Captain America Stanley Tucci didn't want. Yeah. That's exactly the reason that Stanley Tucci picked Steve. Because he had the qualities of heroism that he was looking for without that capacity for sadism. And the sequence where Lamar is killed and John Walker chases down one of the Flag Smashers, which, by the way, I know we deal with a lot of comic book characters with a lot of ridiculous names, but Flag Smashers? Seriously? What's wrong with Flag Smashers? It rolls off the tongue. Sure, and if you just take the term in isolation, sure, go smash some flags. I mean, it's certainly a catchier name than, like, Border Smashers or something like that. In that sequence where John Walker takes his revenge, I think that almost felt like a roid rage. But it wasn't really... I don't really feel like the show realized that. Because I don't think it's really followed up on in that way. You know, I think there might be that moment of realizing what you've done and not being comfortable with what you've done that you're looking for. Well, two points to that, actually. First of all, they've been showing John Walker roid rages right along, like even before he takes the serum. 
Yeah. And second, to your point, he does have that moment of realizing that he's done wrong. Because remember, he runs away from there, he winds up in that, whatever that abandoned building is, and he's kneeling on the ground, like, having a little mini breakdown about it, and then he, like, sort of gathers himself together, and he's like, okay, it's time to go back to work. And by the time Sam and Bucky catch up with him, he's back to justifying himself. They made me do it, I had to do it, I have to go do the job, you're just jealous because I have the shield. He does have that moment, and then he immediately squashes that feeling and goes back to the justifications. Which, again, we see so often in the real world to excuse so many atrocities. The shield, though, is one very potent symbol that the show realizes is very potent and handles with that sort of care. Because the shot of the shield spattered with blood... I think is a very, very powerful shot. Well, it's sort of the inevitable consequence of giving that kind of mantle to somebody like John Walker. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, you said that Lamar Hoskins is the character who said the serum just makes you more of what you already are, but he also said that John Walker was somebody that always made the best decisions in the heat of battle. And that's like the exact opposite of what we've seen throughout the entire show. He never makes the best decisions in the heat of the moment. He always flies into these roid rages. I'm not sure what exactly Lamar considers the best decisions in the heat of battle. Partly because he's not much of a character in this show. Can we talk about Lamar for a minute, actually? Because that is a whole can of worms. Yep. I remember when this show was airing in real time, seeing the reaction of people when they introduced Lamar in episode two. And there was a lot of reaction along the lines of Marvel falls into the racist trope of having yet another white hero with a black sidekick. Which I kind of understand the point, but I don't think it really applies in this case, since the entire point was that John Walker is a violent, aggressive hothead who is entirely unsuited to the mantle of Captain America, and so you really don't want to cast a black guy in that role? No, no you don't. The other alternative for avoiding that trope would be to take the character that's actually black in the comics and make them white, or some other race, so that you don't have the white hero, quote-unquote hero, with the black sidekick, which would also be terrible. Which has uncomfortable implications. I didn't really agree. I mean, I understand that's like a common trope and its commonality is problematic, but I didn't really think that criticism applied in this case. And then two episodes later, they fridged Lamar. See, I thought if I called that fridging, you would yell at me. No, they literally fridged him. They killed the black guy so that the white guy could go into a roid rage. Yes. That's literally what they did. They needed the white guy to go even crazier than he already was, and the way they provoked that was by killing his black friend. That's literally fridging. I read an interview with the writer and the executive producer of the show, and he, like, acknowledged the criticism and, like, acknowledged that it was terrible, but his point was that that was the only way they could really think of to get John Walker to react that way that they needed him to in the story was to kill Hoskins and have him react to that. 
they needed some inciting incident to kick John Walker over the edge, and the only one they could think of was to kill Hoskins, which is almost true, but it has a caveat. That's the only way they could do it immediately. That's the only way they could provoke that reaction in John Walker within a 10-minute sequence. Because John Walker was already building up to that sort of thing, but it was a more of a gradual thing. If they had like an extra few episodes to build up to it, they could have done it no problem. But the only way they could do it as quickly as they needed to get it done was to fridge Hoskins. Um, I don't think that's true. John Walker is such a hothead. I think he has a predilection toward violence because he's been trained to have a predilection toward violence. And, I mean, I've been calling him the avatar of hypermasculine U.S. imperialism, and that entails a lot of frailty. Like, masculinity is... Oh, God, we don't have time. Well, yeah, the John Walker inferiority complex is definitely a thing. Absolutely. A lot of his aggression and violence is motivated by him feeling like people don't respect him as Captain America. Yeah. And especially Sam and Bucky don't respect him as Captain America. Like, he literally grabs a guy, shoves him up against the wall, and says, Do you know who I am? Yeah. And after he takes the serum, his rampages only get worse because he starts to recognize the powers he has and he starts to indulge them. Yeah, when exactly does he take the serum? Because he has that talk with Hoskins where he says, you know, would you take the serum? And Hoskins is like, hell yeah, I would. And then, like, pretty soon after that is the fight where Hoskins dies, and in that fight, he already has clearly taken the serum. He displays his super strength at several points in that fight. But when Carly is talking with some of the other Flag Smashers, she talks about how when they took the serum, it, like, burned in their veins. Like, there doesn't seem to be that kind of time between when Walker gets the vial and talks about whether or not to take it with Hoskins and the fight where he has clearly already taken it and is fine and is ready to go. Yeah, when he had that conversation with Lamar asking if he would take the serum, I expected there to be a scene following that where he went ahead and took it. Or I expected there to be something to establish that he had already taken it before having that conversation. But they never really revisited that topic at all. But back to your point, I think there's any number of ways you can motivate him to kill the person that he kills. Because he is so hypermasculine, because he is so prideful, there's any number of ways you can have his pride insulted and have him go on a rage like that. Before he takes the serum, he loses a fight to Carly, and he can't stand the hit to his pride. It doesn't have to be explicitly losing a fight to a girl, but it would be implicitly losing a fight to a girl. Well, that is why he takes the serum. He loses the fight to the Dora Milaje, and as he's recovering, he says to himself, they weren't even super. That is what motivates him to take the serum. Fair enough. Yeah, good call. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I could think of that would, like, motivate him into a murderous rage, other than revenge for his dead friend, would possibly be if, like, one of the Flag Smashers started insulting him by comparing him unfavorably to Steve Rogers. 
Yes. But I don't think any of the Flag Smashers would have that sort of high opinion of the old Captain America that they would use him to taunt the new Captain America. By this point in the franchise, the superheroes have been very famous, so they would probably know about him. I mean, that could have been justified. If it had been in the show, it could have been justified, but now we're in a hypothetical about a hypothetical. Yeah, now we're rebooking the thing. Yeah, and that might be of limited interest. I didn't think of Lamar's presence as exclusively tropey, because I saw it more as another way that the show was depicting John Walker as a capital W wrong Captain America, because he's paralleling Sam. And you might say that Sam, being Captain America's black friend, is also playing into that trope, and I wouldn't argue the point. (laughs) But I think it was serving that element of the story more than anything else, or at least that's the impression I got. Well, like I said before, I think the role that Hoskins was playing up until his fridging was to, like, humanize John Walker. You know, he's a good guy, he's a good friend, he's a loyal comrade, he inspires the loyalty of his fellow troops. That was the role that Hoskins was playing for the first several episodes. Yes. Yeah. Do we even want to get into how incredibly cringy it is when Carly says, I'm sorry I killed your friend? I only want to kill people who matter to my cause, like the stock workers in that warehouse. And John Walker says, what are you saying, that his black life didn't matter? Uh, Yeah. That's one thing I'm getting at when I talk about the confused symbolism of so many things in this show. Because at that point, he's pretty explicitly just an angry, violent hothead out for revenge. Yes. Putting that line into his mouth at that point, even if you want to argue that he gets a redemption arc later for like 30 seconds while he tries to save a truck full of senators and whatever. I don't know, putting that line into his mouth in that moment is just, again, very confused. It's exactly the sort of confusion that I think you get when a company with the size and prominence of Disney tries to make a show like this, where they insert that basically as a slogan without any deeper understanding of the dynamics involved. Especially since two episodes ago, he's the killer cop. Yeah. While in another episode, there's the scene with Sam and Bucky arguing and the police who show up just because a black guy's arguing with a white guy, and the only reason they don't shoot him is because they realize he's an Avenger. Yeah. I was half expecting in that scene in episode five where he goes to visit Isaiah Bradley again and he has the shield in that leather pouch. I was imagining the cops roll up on him again because he's wandering around the neighborhood at night and then they could ding him for possession of stolen property. Oh, God. No, I think the senator would have to do that himself. While we're talking about characterization in this show, actually, let's talk about Sam a little. Can you tell me what it is that Sam believes? Like, what's his animating impulse here? Like, it's not that every superhero necessarily has to have one central belief that everything else about them revolves around, 
But that was a pretty defining aspect of Steve Rogers' character. That was hammered home in his first movie. He hates bullies. That applies to the Nazis as much as it applies to the security state as much as it applies to Thanos. And throughout this show, like, they talk about people taking on the mantle of Captain America, and Sam doesn't want to take on the mantle of Captain America, and the only extent to which he explains that is that he did what he thought was right, which, without any context, isn't something I really understand. Why did he think that was right? Like, what is he here to do? Well, his main point at that point was that Captain America was Steve Rogers. And if Steve Rogers isn't Captain America anymore, then there shouldn't be a Captain America anymore. Steve Rogers isn't just like a spare part that you replace when it gets old and worn. Steve Rogers is Captain America. And if you don't have Steve Rogers, then you don't have Captain America. That's why he gives the shield to the museum, put it in the exhibit of Captain America. Past that, you kind of have to read into it a bit. Because that's what a lot of the Isaiah Bradley story is sort of building towards, is, first of all, a sort of a parallel point to Civil War, where Sam learns the lesson that the American government can't be trusted with the mantle of Captain America, because they'll just give it to a violent psychopath like John Walker. But then there's the whole other story of, like, what it would mean for a black person to be Captain America. And that's not really anything that we hear Sam ever, like, directly comment on or explain. It's built up through Isaiah Bradley's story, and it's implied in a lot of parallel things, but it's nothing that is ever, like, expressly, explicitly explained. Why does Sam think it's worth taking up that mantle rather than just trying to retire it again? And why does he think it's important that he take up that mantle other than just he clearly can't trust anyone else with it because look what happened the last time? A lot of that is stuff that's implied by the other stories. A lot of that is stuff you kind of have to read into it and assume is going on in Sam's head, but none of it is really ever explicitly expressed. I think because a lot of that isn't explicitly addressed, there's never really a counter-argument to Isaiah Bradley's critique. That sort of explication of Sam's motivations and thinking process and his character development was one of the things that I was looking for in his big final speech, in his crowning heroic moment in the season finale. And instead, I think that speech was pretty empty. Like, I didn't get a whole lot of substance from that. At all. It was very confused. To coin a term. Yes, exactly. Let's talk about the speech, because I have a lot of issues with that speech. And a lot of people really love that speech. Mmm, well, okay, God bless him. I have a lot of problems with that speech. For one thing, a lot of that speech seems to be a response to and summation of the issues that the show has been about relating to Sam and the Captain America mantle and blackness in America and all of that, rather than a speech that would, like, make more sense in context 
or make more sense in-universe. Also, he says right off the bat, like, you can't just label people terrorists and dismiss them, which, in many cases, is a true and valid point. But, like, in this case, where they blew up a warehouse in order to kill the stock workers they had tied up inside, and then plotted to kidnap and murder this government committee... I don't know. I think you can kind of call those people terrorists. Well, I think the main issue with calling people terrorists and dismissing them is the part where you dismiss them. I mean, that's a matter of form and content. And a lot of people focus on form to the detriment of content. Just the thing that you are doing and not the reasons that you're doing it and not the context of it and not anything else. Well, yes, but there are times when the form is so wrong that it overshadows the content, or it takes up the conversation that you want to have about the content because the form is so egregious that you have to discuss that. Like, if there's a band of people going around blowing up warehouses with the stock workers tied up inside, I'm not super interested in what's motivating them to do that. Like, if they're just going around stealing supplies because they need supplies, okay, fine. If they're going around blowing up ammunition depots in the GRC Stormtrooper base, okay, fine. But if they're, like, going around blowing up stock workers rather than just tying them up and taking all the stuff, you know? Once you start murdering people, I feel like the methods have overtaken whatever else you want to talk about. Well... Ideally, yes, you would like to see a, uh, a greater sense of class solidarity with the workers. I mean, the people you abduct and maybe threaten violence towards are the members of the committee who are making the decisions that are resulting in people getting rounded up and deported to... I have no idea what their plan was. I mean, like I said before, she seems to repeatedly say, one world, one people... Except for those fuckers. Them I want to kill. Yeah, well, that's exactly what we've been talking about as far as ham-handed writing decisions, because it has to be forced into this rubric of the hero and the villain. Although you are echoing another point Sam makes in his speech that I think is very, very bad, where he says that you can't just dismiss these people. Look at how much they believed in what they believe in. Look at what they were willing to do for the cause they believed in. You have to give their cause serious consideration because look at how far they were willing to go in support of that cause. That's an indication that that cause is something you should really give true consideration to. Which, again, is a platitude that is terrible once you actually apply it to situations. Yeah, this scene is a pile of platitudes. Look at what these people were willing to do. Because they believed that Joe Biden stole the presidential election. You have to give their cause serious consideration because of how far they were willing to go in support of it. I mean, that's another form and content issue. Again, it sounds okay as a platitude, and as soon as you start applying it to specific situations, it completely falls apart. People believe all sorts of nutty things and are willing to go to extreme measures in support of that belief. People believe all sorts of really terrible, terrible, terrible things and are willing to go to extreme measures in support of those goals. 
I mean, if you want to argue that this whole resettlement plan is terrible and a human rights violation and you shouldn't be imposing it on people, make that point. Don't stand there and say, well, the fact that these people were willing to resort to terrorism should show you how worthy their cause is. Yeah, the one part of that scene before his speech that I actually did appreciate was when Sam was talking to the nebulous government officials and one of them asks him, do you think it's fair for governments to have to support all of these people? And instead of the big speech, he just says, yes. That's what government's for. (laughs) Like, literally, yes. I don't think that question is hard. Yeah, but that leads into the next thing where the senator guy says, you know, you don't understand how complex this issue is. And Sam's like, you're right, I don't, but maybe that's a good thing. Like, no, lack of knowledge is never a good thing. Like, again, I understand the point they're trying to make, but no, we need to bring in somebody with colloquial wisdom who doesn't have any knowledge relevant to this actual topic rather than experts in the field. No, that's bad. No. Ignorance is never good. Ignorance is never a virtue in trying to solve any problems. Now, if you want to say, like, these highfalutin government committee people are too divorced from the situation and are just moving thousands of people around like pieces on a risk game, make that point. But don't say, like, I don't understand all of this and that's good. No, no, it's not. I think that's an issue of the forest and the trees, where... They're getting lost in the particular details of implementing a policy which is, in the broad sense, grievous. And you can see the grievousness of that policy even if you don't have a specific understanding of all of the details of its implementation. Your understanding has to be informed at some level by some of those details, But I think that's speaking to a broader sense of ethics, which again doesn't have to be, and I think shouldn't be, an issue of highfalutin folk and homespun wisdom, but... Well, that's what I'm saying. He should, if you want to say, you're right, I don't understand all the complexities involved here, but I do understand the impact that these policies are having on people in those refugee camps, which you seem to be glossing over. That would be an entirely different argument. But, like, I don't understand, and that's a good thing. No, not understanding is never a good thing. I don't understand the complexities of all the logistics, but you don't seem to understand the impact you're having on people's lives. Make that point. I think they almost tried to get to that point, because he does talk about the feeling of helplessness and the fact that you have to understand that feeling and account for that feeling. Yes, that's a very good part of what he's saying, yeah. Yeah, that's getting to a valid point in context. But again, the show is very confused, not just about its symbols, but about its themes. And I think that's the same reason why, even after all this, I don't know what Sam believes. I don't know what Sam is here to do. And because, from that point, the speech kind of devolves into a list of platitudes... It never gets around to answering Isaiah Bradley's critique of what Sam is doing. Isaiah Bradley's point is that in a country with the history that ours has, and in a country that did what it did to Isaiah Bradley and every other black person, basically, that hasn't done the work to grapple with that, 
that a black man will not truly be accepted as Captain America, and a black man who takes on the mantle of Captain America is alighting that history and overshadowing the work that hasn't been done. And then Sam makes his whole speech that doesn't really do a lot of that work. And then there's a shot of Isaiah Bradley watching the speech, and he eventually, like, nods approvingly or something. Sam actually does answer that critique later. I don't remember the exact words, but when he goes to visit Isaiah Bradley again, he makes the point that's basically that black people helped build this country, black people helped make this country what it is, and no matter how terribly this country has treated black people, that doesn't mean it's not still our country and we can't still stand up for it. That's the point he makes to Isaiah Bradley at the end. Although that whole end sequence with Isaiah Bradley is, is again, very confusing to me. Yes. Because he tells Sam the story in episode 5 of what was done to him and what was done to other soldiers like him. That they were basically experimented on to try to find a serum, and all of the others died from the experiments, and he was the one that survived, and his reward for surviving was to be locked up so they could continue the experiments for another few decades. And then at the end, Sam brings him to an Isaiah Bradley exhibit in a little annex off the Captain America Museum, and Isaiah is like pleased and proud and now no one will forget and whatever and it's like i never got the impression that what isaiah bradley wanted was recognition no that's exactly the precise thing that he did not and again that's it's another platitude right kind of yeah because does that exhibit describe like we performed these terrible medical experiments on unwilling, unknowledgeable participants, and, like, all but one of them died from it? Is all of that detailed in that exhibit? I mean, this is very clearly a takeoff on the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, and I'm not sure how many museum exhibits there are about it, but that hasn't improved the state of race relations, has it? I mean, maybe we're both too white to get into this conversation as much as it needs to be gotten into. Well, that is a certainty. <laughs> yes. And maybe for that reason, the particular shape of my cynicism is not earned, specifically on my part, but I am heavily inclined toward the cynical view here. It just, again, it seems confused, because his whole speech in episode 5 is about everything they did to him and everything they took from him, and how there's literally nothing that anyone could do now to make any of that up to him. He can't get his years back, he can't get his life back, he can't get his wife back, he can't get time with his family back. There's nothing that can make up for all of the pain that he went through as part of these experiments. There's nothing that can make up for the other men who were killed by these experiments. All of these things that have been done to him and to the other test subjects, there's nothing that could ever make up for those crimes. Except, apparently, acknowledgement in a museum exhibit? Over and over again on this show... Sam encounters people who have experienced injustice or just are in a disadvantaged state for whatever reason. 
and he offers to try to help an individual person in an individual circumstance. He's going to make a call. He's going to get someone to provide them with whatever they need because he's an Avenger. He keeps trying to put patches on a fundamentally broken system, which is part of Carly's point, which is part of Isaiah's point. And at the end of the show, he puts a patch on Isaiah. He calls someone at the Smithsonian or whatever. It is very confused and very dedicated to having a pat ending. At least in that plot thread. Well, the whole thing with his sister and the family boat is the same thing. That's almost an accretion of patches until you make a whole outfit made up of patches. He calls everyone in the community and they come together as a community. Yeah, but his whole motivation there is the same thing. You know, I'll go with you to the bank and then they'll give us the loan. I can call all of these people and they can come together and help us. We spent the whole WandaVision show identifying various characters and how they were all the villain. Sam is pretty unambiguously the asshole in this whole argument over the boat, at least in the early episodes, right? Yeah. With the boat and the loan and that whole thing, he is pretty unambiguously the asshole in that whole discussion. Because apparently his sister was not snapped, and so she's been dealing with all of this for five years, and he just swoops in, is like, well, now I'm back, I can fix it all? Basically, yeah. Even that comes to, like, too pat an ending, you know? When they have that discussion at the end of episode five, and he says, I thought I could go out and change the world, but I know you thought I was just running away from our problems here at home. And she says, no, I never thought that. Which is patently absurd because she's been thinking that for this entire series, let alone for the decades before it. (laughs) Like, she could have said, you're right, I did think that, but now I see what you were trying to do. Now I see what you were fighting for. Now I see the cause that you were working toward. But instead she has to say, no, I never thought that thing that I've been saying for the last several episodes. No, because we need to resolve the plot. Although I will say the boat-fixing montage is probably my single favorite scene in the show. (laughs) The boat-fixing montage and the party at the end. Really, this series should have spent more time on the boat. Or explaining the refugee crisis in a way that makes sense. Either way. (laughs) See, this is another show where I think... The characters and the character interactions work very well. John Walker's descent into just violent rages, that works as a character beat. Sam and Bucky coming to terms with each other and coming to terms with how each of them views Steve, that works. Yeah, their chemistry as actors and as characters is fantastic. And the Isaiah Bradley story, right up until that last scene in the museum, that is really riveting and really well done and really well constructed. All of the character stuff is really, really good. All of the, like, larger plot stuff doesn't really hold together. Seems very confused, to coin a phrase. Although one thing I realized watching this, this is basically the first time Sebastian Stan has, like, acted as Bucky Since, like, the 2011 Captain America movie, right? Oh, yeah, he had more lines in his first scene with the therapist, his terrible, terrible therapist. He had more (laughs) lines in that scene than he had in the last 20 movies. 
because like he was the Winter Soldier, and then they put him back on ice, and then he was like in a post-credits scene, and then he was in a couple of battles, but I don't know that he had much dialogue at all. They even put a lampshade on that. They keep talking about how he stares, and and Sam hates his staring, because that's all he's gotten to do in all of these movies. (laughs) Well, that was another thing. If we want to continue the topic of terrible takes on the internet... Oh, do, do, well, okay. (laughs) There was an article, I didn't read the whole thing, but I saw the headline that apparently having Sam and Bucky both on the show and they didn't kiss at the end, that's queer baiting. I mean, I think that particular summary of the view might be a straw person, but, um... I mean, what did they possibly do on the show that would qualify as queer baiting other than just having those two male characters on the show and not having them get together. I always feel like I'm at a bit of a disadvantage in discussions of queer baiting being demisexual and demiromantic. Like, I, I have a uh, um, an inability to understand the mechanics of a lot of love stories, and so if people tell me it has the form of something, sometimes I just go ahead and trust them. I heard that view and didn't read anything extensive about it when the show was on, because I didn't want spoilers. And as I watched the show, I I was looking for something like that, knowing that some people had that opinion. And I think you have to be really dedicated to your ships to see this as queer baiting. There is some of the stereotypical discomfort between male characters who have to be physically close, who don't want to be emotionally close. There's that sort of emotional closedness and kind of shifting discomfort. At first, yeah. Yeah, kind of a no-homo impulse. But it's never... I don't think that's a story element, frankly. I think there's some distance to be had between portraying the discomfort that exists in homosocial spaces due to the existence of homophobia, queerphobia, whatever you want to call any particular thing, and engaging in that homophobia or queerphobia. And I think this show is on the right side of that spectrum. Like, there are other contexts in other shows where I see that dynamic a lot more clearly. I didn't really get that vibe in this show. I mean, that's occurring in the context of the eternal Steve Bucky ship. And it's just another way that people are forcing the mantle of Captain America on Sam. (laughs) And if you're looking for shipping content in this show, the Winter Soldier says he tried online dating... I'm not on Tumblr anymore, but I think that's the line that launched a thousand fix. Yeah, that's sort of an open setup, isn't it? Bucky's online dating profile, and he gets matched up with... Sam. Oh, God. Bucky's online dating profile, and he gets matched up with... The Hulk. They've gotta have a superhero dating site. Bucky's online dating profile, and he gets matched up with... Harry Potter. Bucky's online dating profile, and he gets matched up with Sherlock. I thought we were moving on from queer baiting. (laughs) Can I ask something? 
It's a relatively minor point, but it stood out to me and bugged me because it happened so often. We've never talked about a minor point. Sam Wilson was in the Air Force. He's a trained military... I don't know if he was an officer or enlisted. He's a trained military personnel. John Walker is a trained military personnel. Bucky is the frickin' Winter Soldier. And even before that, he was a trained military personnel. All of the Flag Smashers are just, like, folks from the refugee camp that got wrapped up in this, right? Like, even if they've been given this superhuman strength and speed, why is it that they're able to beat up military personnel who have been trained in hand-to-hand combat? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, the element of surprise. Something else I'm very confused about, actually. The ever-changing status of Sokovia. Uh, well, shifting borders and all that, you know? The end of Age of Ultron was all about how they were going to rescue everyone from the city before Ultron did whatever he was going to do. They weren't leaving that flying rock until they had rescued every civilian in the city to prevent them from being casualties of Ultron's scheme or whatever. And then in Captain America Civil War, Sokovia is this, like, giant disaster that resulted in a loss of thousands of lives, and it's such a terrible thing that everyone agrees we have to regulate these superheroes. And I didn't quite understand that shift. But now, according to Zemo, apparently, like, Sokovia is completely depopulated, and it just got carved up among its neighbors and no longer even exists? There's, like, a memorial where Sokovia used to be? Like, it was just one city that Ultron was doing that to. It wasn't even the entire city. It wasn't the whole fucking country. Sokovia is another thing. It just, it seems to be whatever they need it to be for a particular story, and there's no consistency from one thing to the next. It was the Avengers' shining hour where they rescued everybody, and also it was a disaster that is why we have to regulate the Avengers, and also it completely wiped out an entire country. I have no idea how large a country Sokovia was supposed to be beforehand. I suppose the city might have been a very large proportion of its population. And if I could read into it a lot, I mean, that's another refugee crisis, right? Where you have this whole displaced population from this city, which if it was a significant, significant proportion of the small Eastern European nation would cause a lot of instability in that country, would cause a lot of instability in the surrounding area. And I suppose if I wanted to make up justifications for some of the story contortions, I could make up some justifications. But you're right that it's not a consistent thread. It's a little, shall we say, confused. That's another thing. There's a lot, a lot of people with British accents in all these refugee camps, even though they're all in Eastern Europe. Well, God, dude, it's a TV show. (laughs) Can I pick another extremely, extremely minor nit? While we're here. How do they expect us to believe that Sam is from Louisiana when his drone is named after the Detroit hockey team? Another point that is so, so irretrievably confused. 
We haven't really talked about Bucky's journey in this show at all. True. It's another way that this franchise is, if not dealing with trauma, presenting people trying to deal with trauma. Well, the thing with Bucky is that people keep telling him he's free now. Like, his therapist says that in the first episode, and the Dora Milaje say the exact same thing in the flashback at the beginning of episode four. And he seems to be, like, trying to figure out what that means and what to do with it. And he doesn't really know. Although that's another, like, slightly too pat ending where, like, he finally tells his neighbor whose son he killed that he killed his son. And in the next scene, every name in the entire book is crossed off. Yeah. I wasn't sure which way that was going to go. Like, if the old man was going to have a moment of closure about that, or have an even greater sense of betrayal that this person has only befriended him out of guilt, and therefore in a way just re-traumatized him. And at the end of the day, the show totally ignored that whole part of it and just cut to Bucky leaving the apartment. Yeah. Also, Bucky explaining himself there by saying, I didn't have a choice. That's a very nebulous way of trying to explain the circumstances. Yeah, that's a very bad way of communicating I was brainwashed. Yeah. I was brainwashed and mind-controlled. That might be relevant information in that moment. At the very least, it would help decrease the sense of betrayal that his friend is the one who killed his son. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming that came up at some point in the conversation, but they don't show that. And again, it's about doing the work, right? You can't just show up in someone's face and apologize. You have to do some work. But it doesn't show us that work. And there isn't even a suggestion about any of the other names. So, ultimately, it's a little empty. I do kind of enjoy that when Sam and Bucky go on their first mission together, when Bucky gets ready to jump out of the plane, him suiting up to get ready for the mission is tearing off his sleeve to expose his metal arm. (laughs) Well, wouldn't you if you had half a chance? You know, Sam needs like a whole armored outfit and a wing pack and a rocket on his back, and Bucky just like tears off his sleeve. I did note a couple of lines toward the beginning of this series where people were reflecting on how the world is only now starting to go back to normal, which, living in a region where vaccines are becoming more widely distributed, is a topical comment that wasn't supposed to be topical. (laughs) Although, you know, on the topic of everyone's favorite pandemic pastime, I didn't find this show to be as bingeable as WandaVision. I think part of it was the half-hour episodes, and I think part of it was just the storyline that didn't interest me quite as much. But that whole sequence between, like, episode three into four, even, where it was more of a, like, a intrigue spy thriller kind of thing really didn't interest me much. Watching it all right in a row, that section really dragged for me. The character stuff I liked a lot more. The action scenes were really good, as always. 
all the stuff that moved the story forward, I kind of liked. But that whole, like, spy thriller intrigue part sort of dragged for me in a way that none of WandaVision did. I think that's the difference between you having watched it as each episode was released and then watching it again to do this podcast. I found that it was moving along well enough to keep me going. I can imagine that if I sat down to watch it again, there are some points where I might flag a little. I did find some of the discourse around this show less tiring. (laughs) Like, I talked in the last episode about how, like, every week for nine weeks, there were just torrents of articles about how this particular detail of the scenery behind Wanda in this particular scene suggests how they're going to bring the X-Men into the MCU. Not a lot of X-Men in this show. Yeah, there wasn't that sort of thing revolving around Falcon and Winter Soldier. That sort of fevered, entirely empty speculation didn't really happen around Falcon and Winter Soldier the way it did WandaVision, so I found that bit of discourse less tiring. Even while this show is equally, if not more so, a setup for more things in the future... Well, they did introduce the whole Power Broker storyline. Yeah, can I just say, I don't even want to have a whole big discussion about that aspect of the show, because I was almost completely uninterested in it. Well, they they didn't really set up the Power Broker, other than just, like, they're a crime boss from Madripoor. Yeah. Which, I don't know if there's anything more to the Power Broker. I haven't looked up, like, who are these people in the comics, so I know what they're going to be doing in three movies. (laughs) Yeah. I haven't felt motivated to do that for her or for the Julia Louis-Dreyfus character. I was just going to mention, the internet tells me she was actually supposed to debut in Black Widow, but then the schedule got all kerfuffled, so here we are. I mean, her role in this show is, like, post-credits scene material, except she's in, like, two or three scenes. Yeah, well, she apparently... I don't know what she does exactly, but she's apparently, you know taking advantage of John Walker to, like, move him to the next stage of his development in the comic books. Yeah. Whether or not he winds up being the central villain of Captain America 4. That would be... a thing. Yeah. They are apparently working on a Captain America 4. I assume they're not very far in it. You know, the stage they're probably at is that Kevin Feige said to a guy, Sure, go ahead, write a Captain America 4. Yeah, but, like, these Marvel people have every movie planned out for the next 15 years, so, you know, people are mining details in WandaVision to see how the X-Men are coming in. They probably have the next seven X-Men movies planned. Yeah, I knew Wanda was going to appear as, like, essentially the villain of Doctor Strange 2. I didn't realize that movie didn't come out for, like, a whole nother year. Doctor Strange 2 doesn't come out until March of 2022. I assumed it would be like this summer to capitalize on the WandaVision setup. That is pretty far off. Although, of course, because of all of the schedule malfunctions, they do have four movies yet to come in 2021. Really? That many? I know Black Widow is finally going to come out at some point. Black Widow is July. Shang-Chi is September, Eternals is November, and then Spider-Man is December. Wow, they're just piling them in. Yeah. 
Well, Black Widow, I suppose, was supposed to be last year. I don't know if Shang-Chi was going to be, too. And then another four scheduled for 2022, if all of that works out. I like how all the studios decided, fuck it, we'll just put stuff up on streaming. Right when we finally got our vaccine shit together, and they could say, okay, we're gonna reopen theaters. Well, some people in some places. Can I ask a question? Absolutely. What was the point when Bucky went to rearrest Zemo? What was the point of all the theatrics with the empty gun and then the rain of bullets just for the Dora Milaje to, like, walk up behind him? What was the point of all of that? I think that was another gesture toward showing Zemo that just because he's been through everything that he's been through and just because he is one of these super-powered people, he's still not so inherently a killer that he has to kill him in that moment. That he's made that choice. Which sounds a little more sinister now that I say it out loud. <laughs> yeah, instead he let the Dora Milaje arrest him and take him to the International Black Sight Prison, I guess? Do we have to still have that after uh, the snap? After the blip? After stuff? Well, wasn't the whole point of that existing was somewhere where they could lock up super-powered people who would be able to escape from normal prisons? Like, that's why all the Flag Smashers were being brought, like, straight there at the end before they got blown up. Yeah, we, we can't afford due process. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you get too much into the social and political implications of all of this, it gets bad. A lot of the implications are bad. There were fun characters, and the action scenes were cool. I could say that about this show. Many of the implications were bad, but there were fun characters and the action scenes were good. <laughs> There's one question this show doesn't ever really address. <laughs> yeah. Whatever happened to Steve Rogers? Like, he didn't die at the end of Endgame, he just can't be Captain America anymore. But, like, Bucky and Sam both just, like, always talk like he's gone, even when they're alone. Is he, like, you know, fucked off into retirement, just, like, away from the world so that nobody knows what happened to him? Or you'd think of all people, Sam and Bucky would be able to get in touch with him. I honestly have no idea what's supposed to have happened to him. Well, to close us out, to really bookend this discussion... We should talk about one other area where this show just breeds confusion. At the end of this show, after Sam puts on his Wakandan Captain America flying rocket wingsuit, the end titles on the last episode change the name to reflect his new moniker and they call the show Captain America and the Winter Soldier. Except we already have a movie that's called Captain America the Winter Soldier. So, like, the grand total difference between the two titles is now an and. I think that breeds confusion. <laughs> it's kind of like a couple of years ago, they made a movie called Suicide Squad, and now they're working on a sequel to that movie that's called The Suicide Squad. When's The Batman coming out? These filmmakers' steadfast refusal to just put a fucking number on their, in their title is just making things harder and harder to keep track of. Well, where once there was a colon, now there is an and, and I think that's beautiful.
You want to cover the score and finish up? I suppose we could. I don't have particularly much to say about the score. It's serviceable. It's fine. There are consistent elements running through it, but it's not something that I have any particular deep analysis of. What did you think? Yeah, I feel the same way about this score that I felt about the other Henry Jackman Captain America scores, where, like, it's it's fine in the show, it's fine in the moment, it's pretty good at accentuating certain moments, but, like, to try to listen to it as a separate musical composition, it's 90% nothing. <laughs> I like the little motif he uses for Captain America. I wish it was used about 800% more than it is. And I think it does detract from it somewhat that he uses basically the same musical stinger for John Walker. That was an element that I thought was well spotted. The kind of transmuted, just a little bit, music for John Walker. Again, just enough to communicate that it's close but wrong. Was it actually transmuted? I didn't pick up on any significant differences. Yeah, I think it was, a little. Hmm. Or at least during the uh, cliffhanger, when he's first revealed, it's foreboding. I don't know. Like I said, this is just like the Captain America Winter Soldier and the Captain America Civil War scores, where it has its good moments, and it works really well in the actual show, watching the show and letting the music accentuate certain moments. But to try to listen to it separately, it's, like I said, it's like 90% nothing. You know, the Winter Soldier screech is back, still a screeching. Not that that's not evocative, but, you know. It's not much to listen to. As an album listen, yeah, not really. I did like the touch of having the band at John Walker's High School play the original Captain America USO tour music. That was very nifty, yeah. I'm curious how exactly they did the bits of Wakandan music that they use at various points for the Dora Milaje. At first, I just thought it was probably just tracked from Black Panther. But then there's stuff that they use, like, in the fight scene that's more integrated and not just an accent piece. And so I'm not sure, was that, like, original music for this? Or is that just another piece that they cribbed from somewhere? I don't know specifically. I haven't seen any discussion of that specifically, but I'm sure that they could pretty easily just get some of the same percussionists together. I mean, the percussion is what's really distinctive about a lot of that Wakanda music, so I don't think that's outside the realm of possibility to just bring in some of those elements. Hmm. I was curious about that. If that was original or just tracked in... Is that just Henry Jackman aping the style? I would assume that that's something just done in the same style. Well, until another colon is transformed into an and, and we all go back to theaters, hopefully, to see Captain America and the Civil War, that'll do it for us here on the podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, you can find us at NontoxicFanboys on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at nontoxicfanboys at gmail.com or visit our website at nontoxicfanboys.com. If you'd like to help support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash nontoxicfanboys. This month, we'd like to thank friend of the show Steve Willie for joining us over on Patreon. 
Steve will now receive early access to new episodes, a patron-exclusive behind-the-scenes podcast, help choose topics for us to cover, and get a live thank you on the show. Thank you, Steve. Steve is also the host of Feeling Good For Now, a podcast that also features me. We bring you nuggets of positivity as well as spectacular advice in response to listener questions. You can find us at bit.ly slash goodfornow, and please send any and all advice questions to spectacularadvice at gmail.com. The theme music to this podcast is Discovery by Alexander Nakarada. Details are in the episode description. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. That's exactly the reason that Stanley Tucci picked Steve Rogers. Steve. God, I've seen this show. I've seen the movies. <laughs> oh my God, I said that as a joke because I didn't think that could possibly be what you were trying to remember. I totally blacked out. I'm like, no, I don't want to call him Chris Evans. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That's probably the coda. Oh, fine. I guess I deserve it.